listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So this is the final Sunday before the season of Lent begins. The last gospel story we tell is of Jesus' transfiguration. I want to speak to this gospel episode, but then also say some things about this coming season of Lent and what it might mean for you and for us as a church. Now, the story of the Transfiguration sits more or less midway in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if not literally halfway through, certainly symbolically. It's just before this that the disciples have begun to realize, ever so slowly begun to realize, that Jesus is more than just a teacher, just a healer, that he is perhaps, dare we hope, can we even say it out loud, he's the Christ, the anointed one, the, the Messiah. It's also around this point that Jesus begins to turn from the Galilean countryside and head toward Jerusalem. They wonder, is he mad? Flaunting danger? I mean, word is that Herod is already concerned with news of his popularity, his growing movement. Maybe maybe he's not ready. Maybe we're not ready, the disciples think. And of course, they're still understanding this in terms of a a conquering Messiah. They're, They're looking for an heir to the warrior King David. A revolutionary of sorts, someone who will, who will break in with a new beginning for Israel, freed of the empire. It's, of course, kind of amazing that that's what they're expecting, given that Jesus has shown absolutely no sign of being that sort of a king, that sort of a leader, that sort of a revolutionary. Those disciples, they're filled with questions. They're not entirely sure what he's going to require of them. And when from time to time Jesus speaks about his going toward his death, they they can't even bear to hear it. So it's in the midst of this time frame that Jesus turns to Peter, James, and John, kind of that triad of his closest disciples, and he asks them to climb up the mountain with him so he can go and pray. Up they go, and they have what can only be described as a mystical experience. Now, in using that word mystical, I don't mean to suggest that it is somehow less real or that they were having what amounted to a kind of a shared hallucination. In the Christian mystical tradition, there's always a sense that what is seen or heard or experienced is actually more real, not less real, than normal reality. That's true of the medieval mystic Julian of Norwich, as she describes her series of 14 visions or showings in her work. It's true of St. Francis of Assisi, who 
on hearing the voice of Jesus coming to him from the crucifix in a dilapidated church in the Italian countryside, a voice saying to him, Rebuild my church, Francis, launched into his transformational life and ministry. It's true, too, of Martin Luther King, Jr. When he was awoken by a threatening and hateful phone call that was telling him that both he and his family would surely die if he continued his work, he couldn't sleep that night, and so he got up and he sat at his kitchen table pondering whether or not he could or should possibly go on against that threat. And then came a profound stillness of which King later wrote, I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Now, people of God, it doesn't get any more real than that, right? When people have those kinds of mystical experiences, yet they are so concrete and they move in a whole new direction. Do you hear this story in which Jesus' face shone like the sun? His clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly he's there alongside of Moses and Elijah, who are long gone from this earth. Suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's all a bit much, right? I mean, it's no wonder the disciples kind of collapse on their faces, but but it's a kind of a hard one for many moderns to swallow. It has to be a story that was created later on to say something about Jesus being Lord even over the law and the prophets. It must be a kind of an apologetical story intended to proclaim Jesus' divinity. It must be what in our epistle tonight was called with tongue-in-cheek and more than a bit of, you know, uh, sarcasm to it. It must be a cleverly devised myth. Of course, in that epistle it says, this isn't cleverly devised myths. To this, to that sort of, who can believe that? Who could swallow that? How could that possibly be? To this, N.T. Wright responds, Our Western consciousness, and perhaps self-consciousness, denies us so much. Our modernity, our Western minds, deny us so much. Not so with the theologians of the ancient church and of the patristic period, those first six, seven, eight hundred years of the Christian tradition's life. Those theologians positively rhapsodized over the story of the transfiguration. Not one moment of wondering how it could be or if it could be or doubt. No, no. And they elevated it to a place of importance that has rather been obscured in the Western Christian world, most particularly in the Protestant world. To cite John of Damascus from the late 7th century, Christ is transfigured not by receiving something which he is not, but by revealing to his intimate disciples what he really is, opening their eyes 
and enabling them to see out of their blindness. Their eyes were opened. They were enabled to see out of their blindness who it is they've been following all along. It's not that something's been zapped on top of them. It's rather that something is now made visible to them. Now, they did relapse into blindness, those disciples. And they fumbled around for much of the rest of the gospel, and they missed so much of what Jesus was trying to teach them. And in the end, they would flee in fear into the night. But for all that, they had this moment, those three in particular, this moment. And they remembered it. They remembered this strange shared experience. They remembered it, and in time, they would retell it. Which is why it's referenced here in our reading from Second Peter, where it says, You will do well to be attentive to this experience, this transfiguration, to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, tell the story as an act of resistance in times when it is so terribly dark and unsure. It's why why we read this story on the last Sunday before Lent begins. So that we will have this lamp shining in a dark place. Aware of who it is that will walk into the desert in next week's gospel reading. To spend 40 days and wrestle with temptation. Aware of who it is that we will watch die on Good Friday. It's not just a troublesome teacher and healer that the Romans found necessary to dispatch. No, we're talking here about the Christ whose face shines. So how to walk the season to prepare to again bear witness to his dying? Each year at about this time, I encourage you to consider taking on a Lenten discipline taking something extra on as a practice or giving something up. Remembering, of course, the 40 days of Lent don't include the Sundays. That's your day of rest. But what could it be this year? What could you do to make the season different from other seasons? A discipline of daily reading. Now, I've bought some little books. that I'll go to the back at the end of the service. There's they're a dollar, and some of them are two dollars. Kind of daily rate readings through Lent. There's a, there's a stack of 30 or so of them there. Maybe that's a good thing to do. Or maybe a discipline of reading your way through the Psalms. Or, you know, choose your own reading discipline. That's, that's good. What about a commitment to pray each day for the people all around you? The friends and the, and the people you care about and who maybe are needing your prayers, but not just them. Also those who are a bit, of, a bit of a thorn in your side or a pain in your... Never mind. But that's a deeper challenge, right? To every day, be mindful and prayerful for those all around you, including those who are just a little gritty. Maybe you could... Uh, Give something up. Maybe, maybe it's a favorite food for the season. Dessert, coffee, wine with dinner. Maybe. Food stuff, is, that's an interesting way to, to kind of experience going without. 
You could give up Netflix, social media, and the TV. Now, I was, when I was in Halifax, I, I spent a weekend at, a, at the college, uh, the chapel community retreat with about 90 students. And there was a young uh, priest there from the States who'd come up to join in for the weekend. And he's from the South. And we were talking about these sort of various ways of, 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 of embracing Lent. And, and I said, you know, that I, I, do know, I do know that there was a bit of a push a few years back from the Roman Catholic Church in, uh, in Italy around giving up Facebook for Lent. And I said, you know, sometimes I've challenged folks in my community to give up social media. And he looked at me and with an absolutely straight face, he said, yeah, but the idea of Lent, it's to give up something that's good. <laughs> You could fast from buying things for yourself that aren't absolutely necessary. Just not going into that mall or that store. How about a commitment to some sort of almsgiving? Letting go of that daily Starbucks coffee. and Using the money instead to buy fruit for agape table to bring every Sunday night. The possibilities are endless. The point is to see about actually doing something that will help you shape this coming season differently. In light of the face of this Jesus in the transfiguration, but also in anticipation of the hard story of Good Friday. Here's something else to ponder as we move into that season. Repentance is a big theme in Lent. By repentance, though, I don't mean crippling ourselves with guilt and shame, or locking ourselves into a place of sort of self-loathing. Because repentance actually means turning around, right? Doing a 180. But that 180 is done only after acknowledging that there are things in my life that need to be turned around from. So it's a kind of an honest act to say, this is the mess I've made, this is where I've fallen short, these are the things I've not done, or whatever it is. That's what we create that space for every Sunday night when there's the time for confession. It's an important part of our communion liturgy. That sort of liturgical space for confession is ramped up a bit over Lent, particularly at the Ash Wednesday service this week and then again at Good Friday near the end of the season. But here's another thing you may not be aware of when it comes to confession and repentance. There is provision in this tradition for private confession. The Anglican sensibility on this matter, though, is no one has to. All may, some should. You get that? Like, no one has to make a private confession to a priest and to have it resolved because you don't need a priest. You don't need me. It really is God who does the forgiving, the absolving, the healing. Yet there is something very moving and potentially deeply transformational in speaking aloud your failings or your sins or your struggles in complete confidence to someone who offers to simply hear them, carry them, bear your burdens with you, and then speak grace over your life. Alison Curry wrote a really fine piece about this in a recent edition of our diocesan online uh, 
magazine, monthly paper. And I've reposted it with her permission on our website because I think it's really worth looking at. I also want to say that my, in my own recent experience of making confession during my retreat time in Halifax, I've had brought home to me again how freeing a thing it can be. Freeing. So if that's something you find yourself drawn to, just maybe even want to know more about, I can give you more information about what that might involve. And if you'd like to proceed, we could make it happen over this season. However you decide to engage Lent, whatever practices or disciplines or decisions you might make, just know that it is all part of readying our hearts our minds, our souls, and our bodies to bear witness to the death of the one whose face shone, over whose life was pronounced, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And yet did not flee or turn away from that dying. May you have a holy and blessed Lenten season. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.